0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Rahmat. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences, and the humanities. Together with Sharad Kutten, we critically unpack theories, frameworks, and social phenomena the better to understand how society works. Each week, we discuss a classic text, theme, or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. So we are going to talk today about the limits of liberalism. Fascinating topic. And I think it's
1: something that really, you know, people might not even know it. It's on the lips of everybody because of the ways in which politics in Malaysia has evolved. And I think in the kind of political, oh, the moral leadership vacuum that people are now talking about, you know, we've had certain voices come in, interestingly enough, from the royal houses who are trying to set a tone, and maybe it's reminiscent of the older tone, but it was the reassertion of an older tone about how we live together as a society that's become like really yeah. front and center. So, yeah, the topic's very, you know, timely. And I think the idea of, and I, maybe we could start with the statement by His Majesty the Sultan of Johor who said, You know, if you can't live with differences and you can't live with other people, then you should retreat into a cave.
0: Yeah. And uh, that's an interesting development in light of, like you said, uncertainties around leadership for the community. right? Because we're at a point now where democracy or the democratic sphere has become so lively and so rapid and so dramatic as well with the help of social media and stuff like that, where... Doubts are so easily cast on any idea or any, you know, proposal of a social order that we might be seeing the return of centralization, more personality-focused authority that for the longest time liberalism was supposed to solve, right? And this ties back to the question of difference, right? Politics is about managing difference. And... Whether it's at the broader social level or the more intimate interpersonal level, we will come back to these two standpoints between self, what you identify as you or the I, and other, what is different to the I or what is incompatible typically. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I'm just on a level of just pure metaphor. I think the suggestion by His Majesty is kind of rich for you know excavation, right? I mean, everything from Plato's cave to whatever. The idea, I think, of the cave, it, because... The suggestion, even taken literally, is not so unthinkable mm-hmm. because people have, throughout history and in different cultures, retreated into caves, retreated into you know meditation, away from society, in order to perhaps you know, I don't know contemplate life, the human condition, achieve enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I mean, all kinds of things that come from being alone. Yeah. Right. No doubt, that's not what he meant. I mean, he, I think he meant it in. Uh, polemical sense yeah. you know because he's he's saying that the demands that were being made by certain individuals, some segments of society, are untenable. I mm-hmm. mean, they're just unrealistic, they're impracticable. But for those who make those demands, they're not. It just requires, in some ways, subservience to a particular
0: ideal. Yeah, yeah they uh, can just go on insisting.
1: Yeah, by both people who adhere to them, as well as people who don't, basically mm-hmm. say, well, with some might, I might, you know, yeah. uh, I can um, impose those values. But the other kinds of forms of... Living, I mean, clubs, I think clubs are are typical of people trying to find like mindedness as the basis for the association and communes. And because we have in Malaysia some history of that people establishing communes Mm -hmm. where, you know, they they all subscribe to the same worldview. and, And is that so bad? I mean, I do think it would be interesting in a Malaysian context to see whether we can accept that. I mean, that people would be allowed to set up their communes.
0: In theory, communal rights or cultural rights are supposedly allowed in Malaysia, right? Because we've always prided ourselves upon the fact that we can have, quote-unquote, unity and diversity, that each distinct linguistic group, religious group, can stick a claim to autonomy. They can govern themselves, so to speak, right? The problem is not so much to me, withdrawing into its own sort of autonomous terms and conditions, but that it doesn't see this as a spatial problem so much as a problem about laws, you know, and in that the belief that one law should be more supreme than the other, right? So it'll be great if those who are passionate about sectarian laundromats can build their own commune and have various branches of those laundromats. But unfortunately, they don't intend to do that. What they want to say is that, look, this is the order of the day. We can separate from within the murkiness of difference, right? And that's where I think it's a bit more disturbing because we have had you know, Al Arkam, for example, comes to mind, right, as one Absolutely, of those who yeah. like to kind of carve their own space, carve their own distinct ways and they can function like a club. It's you know, if you want to join, great. If not, no big deal, right? But they will continue spreading the message. But right now we have series of microaggressions, right, that point to a certain desire to consume the broader space for a certain Political mood or atmosphere, yeah. You know, this is a problem associated with majority communities. When a
1: minority community, especially a tiny one or insignificant one, whether it's politically or economically or socially, assert these rights and want to withdraw or want to raise boundaries, nobody really is very upset. Because in some sense, that's the prerogative of being in the minority. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you see in Malaysia, I think generally we all kind of think of, you know, group rights in terms of the broad ethnic groups. But it, even within those, there are always clan associations for the Chinese, or you have with the so-called Indian community, which is actually, it's a completely fictional thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the linguistic divides in the Indian community are huge, right? And so those communities allowed. So you say the Sikh community actually have, they have Sikh, schools Mm -hmm. i mean i mean there's schools for people from the Sikh Punjabi community and so you have those but nobody would be particularly upset by that because the problem always is for the majority and mm-hmm. I remember reading years ago an essay about the Russian people and how the Russians have a problem of asserting their cultural identity in a context where they're the majority. Mm-hmm. You know, for all the ethnic min- minorities of the Soviet Union, you know, this was not a problem. Right, right. But it was only a problem, and well, this was the complaint, at least sure, from Russian sure. nationalists and Russian cultural, you know, advocates that for them, it became a problem. It's never enough. And so right. for them, it was, you know, it was more like they felt aggrieved that they could not indulge in any kind of cultural assertion mm-hmm. because they were in the majority. Right, right. The
0: problem too, especially in the Malaysian case, is that the battlegrounds have shrunk to such granular levels, right? So the laundromat is just one out of longer precedent set through other issues like... For example, porcine and Cadbury chocolate. It's no longer just about the typical things you associate cultural autonomy discourse with, like education or media, having distinct TV shows or programs in the language. No, it's about micromanaging, literally micromanaging boundaries, right? To the point where we want the right kind of germs only for <laughs> well, uh, you washing. I mean, you know? <laughs> look, I
1: mean, you can take any number of, say, South Asian communities where ritual pollution a fear of ritual pollution, you know, define so much of everyday life. I mean, you take the Brahmin community and, you know, you, you look at some of the older um, polemics in the South Asian context and, you know, for whom, you know, like a, a Brahmin, you know, if a, a non-caste or a lower caste person's shadow fell in the, you know, across the Brahmin, as you would say, you know, th- this was somehow, you know, p- polluting, you know, and and of course, we know there's a the, the whole political economy behind this, but the symbolic nature of, and the power of that kind of ideology, I mean, it's not unique to Malaysia. It's not certainly not unique to the Muslim community in Malaysia. And the thing is, when the majority community you know, practices this or makes
0: visible these things,
1: it, it's not to say that they only only want to practice it. I mean, I do no, think... No, no, I definitely yeah, don't think that. I think, you know, that, yeah, I think yeah. the other communities... No, and, definitely. Right? definitely.
0: So the, I think, let's be real, liberals do the same. When they say you can't use this word, right? You can't use that tone. You can't make that kind of joke at the water cooler because it's aggressive, right? It creates an unsafe space. It's a kind of moral policing as well, right? only happens in the corporate sphere or the workplace or the classroom rather than so-called the public sphere, right? But this is part and parcel of the kind of politics that we have today, right? Where the battlegrounds, we've passed the time, well, we're not past it yet, but it's no longer physical aggression, but it's also about the kind of sentiments that you find to be egregious or violating. Yeah,
1: I, I do think that at the end of the day, the question is, you know, how do we will deal with this difference? I mean, when the monarch speaks, unfortunately, it has a, the consequence of silencing the debate. You know, because it seems difficult to argue against it. And I think what we see in terms of the actions taken against that cleric, uh, Zamihan, I think his name. It has a kind of chilling effect, I think, on dissenting views and people who, you know, though I I did read in the papers that he said that, you know, he would continue the good fight, whatever that means. But uh, and in in the context where, you know, a lot of us liberals might be applauding and celebrating the words and the actions of the monarchs in this regard, because we see that as necessary for a country drifting towards increasing chauvinism or intolerance of difference. We still want to keep the debate open. Yeah. I think you know we yeah. want to see how is it that we can deal with people of all sorts whose views in, of society are very different from us, but who as have equal right to you know to as it were live out their own desires for yeah. a kind of society. Right? And this
0: is where I think globally we're encountering the limits of you know the liberal procedural democratic model. You know because you can't let intolerance brew to the point where it wins because the system requires tolerance, right? So if the agenda or the kind of speech or rhetoric that is allowed negates the process, the principle of the process itself, right? Because we are tolerating intolerance, then the process itself cannot sustain. And this is where a lot of critiques of liberalism will come out and say, aha, liberalism requires a strong state to step in after all, right? So the state is not the ultimate evil. It's actually the arbiter this entire time, right? So this is where I think a liberalism meets its own logic, right? The limits of what it offers in that ultimately to protect itself, it requires a rule of law or force.
1: Yeah, and that, you know, I think is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's just that you kind of recognize what is it that you're arguing for i mean i mean is there a space for the christian fundamentalist who wants to take their kids out of school or not want to put their kids in school and homeschool in order to keep their kids within a, a largely christian milieu you know not mixing with others not mixing with other kids of other faiths and you know and other communities and you know having this kind of cordon sanitaire around the family life and community life or it is an ayah Pin community or it is the al uh, alarcam i mean all of them share something in common, which is that they're trying to live out their desires for society on their own terms. You know, what the state can do, and not just for liberals, but for everybody, including the Ayapinza, our Arakhan people and the Christian fundamentalists, is that it ensures that they can all do so, but within certain limits. So, I mean, for instance, you know, how you treat your kids. I mean, you know, all kids should be able to go to school. You know, I mean, so
0: that but like, you need more laws, lah. La. Yeah, that's you need, you that's a trade-off. To, yeah, yeah, but the
1: laws are kind of setting the bar. The kind of like you can't go lower than this. But only. But
0: that requires. Beyond which you can. Yeah, but that requires like, uh, and this is the other paradox of liberalisation, right? In that, in order for these things to happen, you need more surveillance, you need more registration. Right? You need, you need maybe some
1: self-monitoring and
0: self-declaration. I know, of no, if you're a millenarian waiting for the next coming or the rapture, <laughs> it's not really your interest to really care about what the bureaucracy demands. True. From you. I mean, this this so, is true, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: and I, I think this is always where you have problems like. And you'll always have cults. We call them cults as a way of making them sound bad and justifying an intervention. But yeah, you have groups, you know. I think there's a, you know, honestly, I believe there's a
0: way of, um, Yeah, but you just bite, bite the bullet and say, well, you, need an, you need a state of exception. You need a state that's always monitoring what's in the margins, right? And this is basically the liberal state that we have today, which is hyper-surveilled, you know?
1: Yeah, but so what is the option? The option is to return to a time maybe of greater freedom where people were allowed to do, you know, things, where cultural difference, the spectrum of cultural difference was huge, right? So you could have one in which children were treated as things to be abused and used in any kind of way that adults wanted to, one where... Children have, you know, seemingly more rights than everybody else. In yeah. a kind of, and there's a kind of hysteria around that's, the rights that's of children. Unfortunately, the world I mean, we've
0: ended up with. <clears> right,
1: so you have this this <laughs> spectrum, right? So I, I think there is a sweet spot. I I, I think it's a yeah. difficult one yeah. to find, but with you know my faith in you know. Con- Common sense. I oh, thought so you were <laughs> gonna <to> say communism.
0: <laughs> no, but- <laughs> no, common sense, common sense. <laughs> That's another kind of state. But let's take a pause right now. We'll be back after this break. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahma and Shark And we're basically talking about the limits of liberalism. So stay tuned. This is VFM eighty nine point nine. BFM 89.9, I'm Ahmad Far Alongside, as usual, Shah back fresh from his vacation from Greece uh, to talk about <laughs> the limits of liberalism. Well, maybe not so fresh because sleep adjustments always tough. But in the first part of the show, we went over some cases local and abroad to show essentially what's going on right now with the rise of Trump, Duterte, or the rise or the staying power of Erdogan, right? Yeah. And his very loyal base, bringing us back to a circumstance where centralization, the strongman, the authoritarian, the autocratic mode of politics is back in demand after a long experimentation, global experimentation with liberal politics, right? So I'll show my cards here. I'm a bit of an autocrat in a sense where I think... But you haven't got any power. <laughs> <laughs> well, not in politics. but uh, <laughs> But I do think precisely for the reasons that we've talked about, politics is such that... It's a domain of passion and not reason, right? So this is where I part with the liberal kind of agenda in that it's always prized reason, plays reason as the central definition of what it means to be a human person, that we can deliberate, we have the mind, we can control our emotions, and from there, make the right decisions. I take the view that there's a deeper contestation between reason and passions. And this is why politics is the way it is today because there's something very erratic about it, problematic about it, and this is what catches our attention. But we haven't quite found a system that can be fair to that. And what we have seen now is that liberal democracy is falling short because it cannot register that mode of being, right? Because it prizes the Kantian rational deliberative autonomous individual?
1: I don't know if there's a real contradiction there. You know, I think the system has to be rational. I mean, it has to be based on some rational principles. And those principles can take into account the fact that there are passions that govern everyday life and they govern politics. And there must be a space for it that, you know, that if you think that we ought to have a system that's based on rationality, doesn't mean that you're trapped into thinking that everybody acts in a rational way. In fact, they're very rational, clear-minded people who think, like yourself, uh, that others are <laughs> irrational and, and are driven by their passion. So, you know, I, I think you. it's a question of where you put these things. I think the liberal project is not exhausted. I, I think it just needs to... Be much more, I think, fine tuned, maybe is the way to put it. How do you deal with populism? How do you deal with this re emergence of a kind of fascistic impulse in Europe, for instance, where, you know, apparent the seat of, you know, rationality? Exactly. After the madness of World War Two, yep. where they showed that they could kill each other. And that a, was after a, World War One. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they killed each other, yeah. <laughs> you know, in dramatic numbers in World War One, yeah. And they went on to kill each other again, you know, drawing everybody into this vortex in World War II. I mean, the tune of you know tens of millions. I mean, you know, outstripping the savagery that we see in you know our part of the yep. world, right? So the Europeans have a very uh, weak leg to stand on when it comes to you know how deep this rational being is or how far going it, uh, he or she is. But at the same time, if you look at the pushback on populism, and I, you mentioned Greece, I mean, Greece has its own new fascistic group called Golden uh, Dawn, Goldon, yeah. right? And Golden Dawn, I mean, all of that, I th- I think, is that they play on legitimate fears that people have. And, you know, and I, I think, or distresses. What if the liberal order does not recognize that globalization, which often is celebrated, produces losers, not just winners, but yeah, losers. Many, many losers, yeah. And those losers hurt. And to the extent that those losers are enfranchised, they're going to use their vote to push back on something that's hurt them deeply. Mm-hmm. If they don't account for that, if they don't address those pains, then they they have they're only themselves to blame when it comes back and bites them in the proverbial derriere. I mean, it it really is. Just this unwillingness to recognise that other side of the equation. That's mm-hmm. it's For me, that's simply that. To the extent that liberals have, you know, indulged in this kind of unthinking, uncritical celebration of globalisation, yeah. and not had, you know, a, a clear view of globalisation and all its complexity, then, well, okay, you deserve it. You deserve this backlash, you know. And it could have been calibrated. It could have been done in a much more well. It, we hope it could be done yeah. in a much more in a way that is inclusive because one of the great liberal values is inclusivity, right? Mm -hmm. You want to draw everybody. So why hasn't globalization done that? Why is globalization and its advocates so unwilling to accept that all these people are going to be trashed? Mm -hmm. I mean, literally trashed by the system and they're going to, and, you know, if you could eliminate them, that's fine, but you can't. They're yeah. there.
0: And that's why a lot of the backlash against the Liberal Project are coming from the extremes, right? The left representing the disenfranchised workers or the poor and, of course, the right who are appealing traditional values which are you know eroding largely because of you know, corrupting influences of the media or whatever, right? Yeah, but
1: the right is also appealing to that same working class base. In fact, the working class now seems to have, you know, completely confused. They seem to be going in both directions, left and right, both extremes, both, you know, in a kind of rejection of globalization. But that's
0: always been the case. Even Marx would distinguish, right, between the proletariat, the revolutionary working classes and the reactionary ones. So, and again, these are the, Terrain that are contested, right? In the amidst globalization, the problem here too is that at least in our region, liberalism has yet. We're just starting to experiment with liberalism. So our political temporality, our sense of lived time, is such that we're a bit out of joint, perhaps even too late <laughs> to really embrace the experiment because we are part of the global South, a former colony and now at the mercy as well of Chinese graces, right? Um, and they're not liberal at all. <laughs> so uh, we seem to be either going to be sidestepping that process or ignoring it altogether at its most nascent stage.
1: You know, this whole Chinese thing really interests me. I mean, the new hegemon in town really does have some disturbing impulses, right? I mean, just, I noticed this about maybe two months ago when... China, through some particular arrangement, was trying to suppress a journal called the China Quarterly. And I've read the China Quarterly and, I, you know, it's a wonderful historical document. I mean, in the past, especially in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s, where they documented the suppression of intellectuals in China. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the China Quarterly was probably CIA backed to some level and promoted this. But the fact is, they weren't making things up. This is not fake news. I mean, intellectuals were suppressed mm-hmm. in China. I mean, some intellectuals were anyway and persecuted. And now... China, you know this great behemoth of an economic power wants to crush a tiny little quarterly, and it is very disturbing. I mean, all of
0: I don't know how many people read China
1: quarterly. I'm guessing maybe 25.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's quite flattering for an academic journal to be banned, actually. Yeah. So the idea here is that the one of the reasons why liberalism could eventually, after two world wars take root in Europe was because the institutions were destroyed, (laughs) demolished, right? And they had to reconstruct with the, you know, finally being able to test out liberal principles after two stubborn world wars, right? And we never had the equivalent remodeling of our public sphere in that way. So decolonization happened. Of course, there were ruins, but not to the scale that Europe saw and not to the level of collective trauma that Europe had, where the old ways had to go and the new ways had to be tried, right? And this is what we saw over the past 60 years, right? And it's shown to be incomplete or insufficient, thereby the backlash. Whereas in Southeast Asia, even, you know, well, you can talk about the Cold War, right, where the liberals clearly sided with eventually the victors and with the help of the Western Bloc, but it was never really about liberalizing political institutions, right? It would adapt to the needs of the market, take heed to the right of property, but in terms of full political transition to liberalism, we've yet to see, right? So what do you sense would be the future of liberalism in Southeast Asia?
1: Yeah, what was the liberal agenda in this region? That's a very interesting question because, you know, there was a group called Congress of Cultural Freedom. And I mean, yeah, again, maybe CIA backed in some way funded in, in this way. But it drew a lot
0: of... Where was this, by the way?
1: It was a global phenomena, and, you know, I think quite a number of journals encounter Das Monad and some other journals in Europe who were funded by this, and they they promoted um, a kind of non-partisan view. What they were trying to do is draw left intellectuals away from the Soviet Union and China, and that seemed to be the political motive. And there were, in fact, a lot of left intellectuals. So they were independent left intellectuals, right? right. right. I mean, I think that's the thing. But the difficulty even for the kind of pro-capitalist lot, is that the imperatives that a lot of these intellectuals, especially in the third world, and they had a Congress, they called them the Congress of Cultural Freedom. They had several iterations of these events, actually. And I think the first one in Southeast Asia was in Yangon in 19... 19- or something. But the important thing about it is that those intellectuals coming from the third world, a decolonizing world uh, more precisely, were concerned about, yes, freedom, you know, national sovereignty. They were interested in being able to choose the different models mm-hmm. for development because the imperative was what? Poverty, raising yep. people out of poverty. So the liberals, I mean, in some sense, I mean, if they were liberals. Uh, the economic imperatives of the day were very, very. Um, that was the weight they really carried. You know, it wasn't liberal democracy, though some people believe that there was something to be said about how a liberal democratic order would best serve the
0: interests of the masses. I was stuck in a van once in 2009 in Pennsylvania with Saad Eden Ibrahim, Egyptian dissident intellectual, and very jolly guy, very warm person, very chatty as well, and we were in traffic from the airport to a conference, and... I didn't know it was him because, I, you know, I had read some Arab intellectual history. I know I know his name and I know it was popular, but I couldn't recognize his face. Right. But then as we were talking and I realized, well, this guy knows a lot about Egypt and he seems to have been around the block. And I gradually deduced that he saw it in Ibrahim. Did you ask him uh, directly? No, no, it was more like, oh, yeah. And he was citing himself in the third person because of some report or something like that. Right. But in a modest way. And I picked up on that. And then I asked him, you know, what happened to Hassan Hanafi? You know, a lot of these leftist Arab intellectuals. And he said, oh, we all just became liberals. Why? Because you know what? We couldn't even organize. We needed basic liberal freedoms, like freedom of expression, freedom of press. Right. So we can't talk about like organizing. Well, some of them did, but they felt it was a lost cause. Right. So many, many of those who post 67 were leftists said that, look, the repressive state is so strong, we need to fight for basic civil liberties first. I think you can draw analogies to the leftists, many leftists in Malaysia as well, right, who realised that, okay, class struggle is important, but first things first, right? Let's get to liberalism first and then get to the next level of history, right? So I think a lot of it too was that maybe liberalism could not take root, largely because of our different, like I said, chronology politically, right, contextually as well, but that the repressive state was so strong that the post-war repressive state too, right? And post-war, Cold War repressive state was such that only one kind of agenda could take hold, right? So, you know, I'm always,
1: um, I'm always surprised though I shouldn't be because I lived in two authoritarian states and and almost all my life. right? And I would say, you know, this meanness towards individuals who are different. And I think, is it really necessary? So much energy spent in suppressing, you know, transgendered individuals, suppressing people who who maybe don't believe in God. You know, all these things. I mean, all of that. And I was thinking, my goodness, if you could just harness people's energies. Because the, what they say doesn't shift the ground so much. You know, why is it they're so threatened? Like, I mean, the China quarterly and the People's Republic of China. I mean why? I mean
0: but you gotta imagine though, at least in this part of the world, the Cold War threat was so real. We had Vietnam War, you had the Indonesian Communist Party, which was one of the biggest in the world, and decolonization really destabilized things, you know, for a good two decades. So the state was hyper paranoid, right? And any sign of difference, any sign that you could have voices that could channel different agenda Right had to be nipped at the bud, you know. So I think you're right. In hindsight, it looks excessive. But back then, you really had a state in a nation that's forming amidst very, yeah. very precarious political Yeah, there were uh, deep situations.
1: contestations. And if the other side won, they might have been as brutal as exactly. the, the yeah, other don't side. They that, that. Yeah, yeah. did ev- eventually win. But... Um, So, you know, so you look back and look back in history and think of models where there was a flourishing of sort of ideas. So do we need a new caliph, sultan, king, emperor, you know, in order to establish an order, they are secure. And in under that, you know, Pax whatever, Romana, Pax Americana, Pax whatever it is, they then establish large spaces for people for real exchange of ideas. I mean, where is it? I mean, because we've had robust exchanges of ideas. We've had the flourishing of different schools of thought. It all happened somehow. And some of it happened under very deeply authoritarian context. The answer
0: is you need a robust welfare state. (laughs) I'm saying it with a a a, grain, folks. That's looking (laughs) forward, not looking back. No, no, but we have had that before. If you look at the flourishing of, you know, just even contemporary Europe, right, with the rise of popular culture, the rise of, May sixty eight and the intellectual flourishing that took place. The reason why Foucault could write so much for so long is because the universities were state sponsored. You know, it's not like today where academics are pressed down to their necks. You know, having to publish while being paid very little because we've taken up the new liberal model. Right, a lot of things could be done because basic needs were taken care of. Right, we forget that context. Uh, Roosevelt after they... the Second World War. Right, you yeah. had social security, but that model was also unsustainable. I mean, if, if... well, according to neoliberals, which are Running the world right now. Well, you, you know, know, governments uh, let's, let's, choked up huge debts. I mean, you know, make, <laughs> you government got, debts are not like personal debts, right? But like, we can, we have enough perspective now. Do we want the model where at least the liberal project could be sustained, mm-hmm. right? However inefficient the cues were. Or <laughs> do we want an efficient march towards apocalypse, which neoliberal is giving us, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, coming back, I mean, since you mentioned Greece, you know, what was. The problem with Greece. I mean, it had a lot of money from the EU, but it was misspent. It created apparently a huge ecosystem of very unproductive people, all superannuated, you know, pensions, this, 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 this very unproductive, and not creating wealth. The only wealth generated in the Greek economy was a small. A group of businessmen and workers who were genuinely... And most of the workers were actually foreigners. You know, Albanians and mm-hmm. people from the Eastern Bloc or whatever. People willing to work like Bangladeshis like, you know, yeah, in Greece. Yeah. There's a whole street in part of uh, Athens that is devoted to Bangladeshi shops, mm-hmm. by the way. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the only ones are working. And then the rest of the economy... Is just sucking up, uh, you know, huge amounts of money and not doing very much. And so, okay, so you might have a Foucault and all that. I don't know. I mean, look, honestly, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, know either.
0: But I'm just saying, like, given what we've seen in the recent history, there have
1: been better times, right? Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And the question is whether winter's coming and how
0: long for. <laughs> well, No, the question isn't whether the winter's here. It's just a question of how long it's going to last. So, book recommendations. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. So, what do you have in mind?
1: Okay, just because we mentioned Greece and maybe there is a very interesting Greek poet called Kafaf Kavafi C A V A F Y who spoke of a lot of personal issues I mention him because he's Greek, but actually lived in Alexandria in Egypt for most of his life. But he kept with a Greek family. And that region of the world is so interesting because in every place you go, you see the shifting back and forth, you know, Venetian, then Ottoman, Turk, then this, then that. And I think that's so much of human history, you know, And, and, and maybe we'd be a little more modest in our expectations of human society
0: when we... Appreciate this history that 's it yeah, I have a book to recommend it 's called "Liberalism: A Counter History by Domenico losurdo and it 's a very easy read because it basically lists the dark side of liberalism since the time of colonialism, from natural right to property to the bush era and it 's an intellectual history, so it looks at all the ideologues of the liberal project and why some of the problems that came along with the liberal project were part and parcel of the logic to begin with so yeah, look that up. That's from 2011, so relatively recently. So, anyway, Sherrod, you are on Twitter. Yes, I'm available at Sherrod Kutin.
1: And, you know, we can have limited <laughs> conversations on Twitter, which is the only
0: way I would have them. Uh, or <laughs> you can email, <laughs> email the show, bfmnightschool.gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook, BFM Night School, or download the app, Apple App Store, or at Google Play. Thanks again, Sherrod, for joining us. Always lovely to have you here. Always a pleasure. We feel complete with you here. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm up for Rahmat. This is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast.
1: To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us
0: on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.